So, Lord, uh, your spirit is our teacher. Let us be your listeners, as it says in Revelation. He who has ears, let us listen to what the Spirit says. So speak to us through your word this morning through me. Uh, remove anything that is not uh, what be helpful, but only that which edifies. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we want to remember Jesus accurately. Accurately. Um, I found out as I'm getting older that my memory problems are increasing. Do you have that problem? Sometimes I go into a room and I forget why I'm there. Oh, I'm in the restroom. What am I here for? I think I might find out. Then once upon a time, I had a friendly discussion with my wife at 54 years about my older brother, Steve. And I knew for certain that my older brother had never been in the military ever. And Judy says, he was in the Air Force. I said, no, he wasn't. Yes, he was. And she said, well, she counseled me, quote, unquote. She says, well, why don't you call up your brother Steve and ask him? So I did call up my brother Steve. I did stomp out the room, a little bit irritated that my wife did not listen to me. I'm, I'm the husband. And, and <laughs> this is a real story, I'm going to tell you. We remember it vividly. So I call my brother Steve, and I have to walk into the room and tell my wife, you know, you're right, Judy. My brother has, has served in the military and was honorably discharged in the air, from the Air Force. How did I forget that? I'm so certain I was right, right on. And I learned a little bit about myself that I should not be so certain about my memories of the past. I need to humble myself and listen even to my wife. She's, she's spot on about that, me, not so much. But don't we all need to realize as we could be just a little bit off in our memories. We can be. Our perceptions may not be the accurate reality. Uh, the good old days, the good old glory days may not be as glorious as they really weren't. We tend to remember the good parts and forget the hard parts nostalgically. But sometimes a little humility and a little listening to other people might help us get a better perception of reality, or we might be looking through a stained glass darkly through colored uh, glass and not really see the whole picture. That's one kind of memory loss, but memory problems can become much worse. Uh, what makes me so sad and afraid is to watch someone I love dearly slip away through dementia. Like uh, my sister-in-law, Joan, Judy's sister, who suffered with multiple sclerosis over the years, and we watched her decline in her mental health. I once went to visit her and walked into her room. She was in her bed, and she had her eyes closed, and we said, Joni, it's, it's, it's Judy and, and me. We're here. And she looked at us with this blank stare that you probably have seen in others. And, and, you, and we go closer, Joni, this is Mike, and this is Judy. Don't you recognize us? And she didn't seem to recognize us. Uh, we tried to talk with her. There was not much conversation at all. And so finally, being in that, that room in, in uh, the nursing home for some time, we finally just had to walk away with tears in our eyes. That's a horrible thing to see that kind of memory loss. And I just pray for some kind of technology or, or some kind of treatment that can help people not have to go through that. But there's a deeper kind of memory loss which can affect all of us, not just dementia, 
but spiritual dimension. We may not remember Jesus accurately. We may have memories of, about Jesus that aren't really accurate. And when he walks up to us and speaks to us in prayer, we may not recognize his voice. He says, I'm right here in your midst where two or three are gathered, and I'm right here this morning. And we can walk into this room and, as gathered believers and not realize that Jesus is here. And we may look at him with that blank stare, and he may even call you by name. I live to hear him call me by name. But how often we miss that because we don't have an accurate remembrance of who he really is. And so this morning, before we come to the table, I want us to remember Jesus by what he actually said at the communion table, that we might love him and know him better because we know who he is accurately. So with that, uh, do this in remembrance of me is what the communion says in 1 Corinthians 11.24. That's the good news. That's the great news. Jesus himself has given us a, quote, memory prompt to help us come together in a gathered situation to stop and reflect on who Jesus really is. So let's open our Bibles, please, to Matthew 26, verse 17, and I'll read through verse 30. And I'm using the uh, New International Version, 1984. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I'll tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. At that point, Judas gets up and leaves the room, does not participate in the Lord's Supper. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. God bless the reading of his word. So this morning, remember, let's remember Jesus accurately. And there's three points, and I said my message notes are manuscript out there on the table. But first of all, we need to remember that Jesus is real flesh and bone human being. He is the God-man. Jesus of Nazareth is not a myth. He's not some nostalgic legend made up by homesick people. But he is a man of history. He is flesh and blood. He locked himself in time and space, wrapped himself in a human body, and, and came to this earth. And most historians agree that, that Jesus is in, of Nazareth actually lived in Palestine about 2,000 years ago. Fact. Jesus is not some new age 
ideal, some reincarnation of the Christ spirit. He is the Christ, and He is in flesh and blood. He came, and He was born, yes, miraculously conceived, but He was born of a woman. He was nursed at Mary's breast. He had to have his diapers changed. He had to be potty trained. And all those things you know about, that's what Jesus went through. Imagine the creator of the world humbling himself to become like that. It's like C.S. Lewis. It's like imagining you becoming a slug. It's just amazing to think that he loves us that much. And he he had brothers and sisters, and you know what that's like. He lived with them without sin. And he, he was a carpenter stonemason. He sweated. He got tired. He got hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. His body felt the sharp pains of being slugged during his trial and slapped around and insulted. And he, he felt the pain of a crown of thorns being smashed upon his brow and he bled profusely. Uh, he endured the excruciating agony of a Roman crucifixion. Oh yes, Jesus is really flesh and blood. This is my body. And he let Doubting Thomas touch his scars after the resurrection. He ate with his followers for 40 days after he rose from the dead. And the apostle John testified in 1 John 1, 1 through 2, that which we was from the beginning, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have handled, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You could touch him. You could touch that cross and get a splinter in your finger. It was so real. This flesh and blood, Jesus rose physically from the dead, never to die again. And he ascended into heaven and is the right hand of God the Father right now. And the martyr Stephen saw him there. And all that without sinning. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Thank you, Lord. But we have one that was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Jesus is the God-man, fully human, yet completely divine. What a, a miracle, this union of God and man in the body of Jesus. As the Bible says in John 1, 1 to 14, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, this is my body, as Jesus' hand lifted up that unleavened bread after Passover. It was to be a symbol of His body, of His person and work that we are to remember, to remember Him accurately. And this bread is a picture of Himself like I don't want to be irreverent like when people take a selfie, this is who I am. Jesus was saying, here's my selfie. This is my body, broken for you. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, He, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be stolen or grasped. But He made Himself nothing. He emptied Himself, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of a cross. This is our Jesus that we remember today accurately. He is the real flesh and blood. He is the God-man. Let's never forget that. He is real. He is in heaven. He really is. And he deals with reality right now with us in our flesh and blood. 
And the second thing that we need to remember as we come to communion based on this passage, remember that Jesus is our Passover lamb who paid for our sins, the Redeemer. Look at verses 27, 28. He took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He came with a mission, with a purpose, with an intention that he would die for the sins of the whole world, and he did, for your sin and my sin. Jesus and the apostles had just finished eating the Passover meal. The main course of that meal was roast lamb, and the annual Jewish uh, feast was commanded by God to the Jews that they would always remember that he delivered the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. He set them free, the deliverer. Now, the lamb at that meal was not merely something you ate. It was a reminder of God's sacrifice, the price he paid for their redemption. This little lamb that they raised from a baby and, and loved it and kept it in their home, they slaughtered it and took the blood of that lamb and, and, and painted it on the lintel and doorpost of, of the houses they were in that they might be safe. And that's what God said in his word, that they would be safe from the death house, the death that would come. We read in Exodus 12, 7 to 13, they are to take some blood and put it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, it took faith to obey that command, didn't it? They need to remember that it cost the death of someone you love to pay so that God would pass over and not punish you for sins. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Lamb of God. Indeed, it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that he is Christ, our Passover Lamb, who has been sacrificed. And so when Jesus took that cup, he's talking about this blood that is so redemptive, that is so valuable, that requires faith to apply it to our lives. This is my blood. Take a picture of it. A violent death on the cross. I died for you. Applied. So now, Jesus links his death with the ratification of what is known as the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. And 31 through 34. I missed one. I'm sorry. Where did I go? There we go. There we go. So if you read in, in Jeremiah 31, it says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. There's a time coming. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor to know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now that covenant is applied to us Gentiles, non-Jews, in the Bible, in Hebrews 8, 7 to 13, extends his promise to we Gentiles, that we have 
the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher now, who helps us to follow His commands, who indeed seals us for, for eternity, and who is the one that Jesus forgave our sins, and we have access into His very presence. Yes, the Bible says that we need that forgiveness because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. Jesus, the God-man, promises all of us the forgiveness of our sins, and we can never earn that forgiveness, could we? What could we do? How much could we give? How much time should we go to church and serve? Call on our knees. Millions and millions of people go to the Ganges and, and douse themselves in the Ganges to receive forgiveness of sins, and millions and millions of people burn incense to a brazen idol of, of Buddha to have forgiveness of sin, and so it goes, and try to keep religion, and it never works. Our sin is never paid for that way. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's what it cost us, our spiritual death. And yes, we die physically because we live in a fallen world, a broken world. But here's what the Bible says in Psalm 47, verses 7 through 9. It reveals that no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for man. No man. The ransom of a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. Huh. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did something which broke this world for a long time. God told Adam in Genesis 2.17, You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan said, No, you won't. God's just trying to make you suffer. He wants to make you have commands. But no, there's a consequence for sin, and it still is an effect. In the Garden of Eden, mankind inherited Adam's sin nature. You have it inside of you. I have it inside of me. And it's like a terminal cancer of the soul that rebels against trusting God like Adam and Eve did at the Garden and trusting in His Word alone, and not trusting that God means what He says. Romans 5.12 teaches us the reality of that sin in every person. We read in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. To sin is to fall short of the glory of God, but more than that is to rebel against His Word and, and disobey Him. And from that time, man owed a debt, and man must pay. The only remedy for our death sentence is the one man who, was, who crushed the serpent's head, the Son of Man Himself, Jesus. Praise God. He alone paid the price with His shed blood for us. As we said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so in Romans 5, 15, it says, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? That's the gospel. Without it, people are lost. They're destined for death eternally without placing their faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Remember Jesus' blood that He shed for you, violently struck for us. 
The Bible says in Hebrews uh, 9, 14 to 15, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences, oh, that leads from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. How rich I am since Jesus came my way, redeemed my soul, and changed my night to day. How very rich we are. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We are free. I said there are three things to remember as we read this passage about Jesus. He is real flesh and blood, a human being, the God-man. Secondly, he is our Passover lamb who paid for our sins. And thirdly, remember that Jesus is the Christ who is coming back soon for us, the Lord. Amen? Amen. And that's what he says in verse 29 back in, in Matthew 26. He said, I mean, Matthew 26, he said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What does that mean? Well, Luke tells us that this, what Jesus meant was the Passover. In Luke 22, 15 to 16, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. When we get to heaven, we're going to be at the wedding of the Lamb. And, and Jesus tells us there's, the cross was not final. That as he is on the eve of his crucifixion, he has foretold to these men several times written in, his, in the Gospels that he's going to die and suffer and rise from the dead and will come back for us. And so this is our future hope. We will celebrate the Passover meal with him again in heaven. But as we come to that point and we say, okay, Lord, this is communion. Remember you accurately. You're coming back for us. There is, I think Pastor Dave says there's actions and applications, right? That's what I want to talk about now. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.26, that passage on communion, it says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, the word is actually, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. So what's happening right now all around the world, people are having communion, they are proclaiming Jesus' death until he's coming back. He is coming back. Oh, any time. Come now. Today would be a good day for the rapture. <laughs> now remember, at communion, Jesus accurately. He's a real flesh and blood human being, the God-man. Secondly, he's the Passover lamb who paid for your sins, our Redeemer, and that he's coming back soon for us, thirdly. So we need to give thanks. In fact, some people call the communion Eucharist, from which we get the word give thanks. We should be thankful. You have given us a gift, and when someone gives you a gift, it's polite to say what? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And there's great songs about that. Give thanks for all he said and all he did for us. And how shall we give thanks to him today? Shall we feel emotional? That would be nice. But sometimes our emotions are just not there. We just don't feel it. But that doesn't verify reality. We need to respond in a very practical, flesh and blood way in the fact that Jesus is coming back soon as we proclaim his death. And so here's a question that came to me when I was thinking about how do we remember him in a way that pleases him? The question, how, what does Jesus remember about you? 
everything accurately. He knows everything about me. Oh, my goodness, who can stand before the Lord? But also remember, even though he knows everything about you accurately, he still loves you. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. He's right here ready for you to come running to him as the prodigal child to the father. His arms are wide open. He's scanning the horizon looking for you. Come back, repent of that sin, and be with me. I want you to be with me. Imagine Jesus coming down the aisle where you're sitting in a pew, and he comes and sits beside you, and he grabs your hand and says, you know, I know you by name. I know what you're going through. I know what's happened, and I love you. It's going to be okay. I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. I know you everything about you accurately, and I love you. And I proved it here at the cross. This, this communion is it's a proclamation of how much he loves you. But there's other things to remember about when Jesus comes back, and I want to talk about that in love. Because when I point to you, I tell everybody else, there's four fingers pointing to me on my hand, and everybody else is pointing at me, because I'm going to go through this as well. 2 Corinthians in the Bible, verse, chapter 5, verse 10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for the things he's done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is not talking about getting saved or losing your salvation. It's talking about what you've done to serve the Lord after he saved you. I've often wondered, you know, when I, when I came to faith in Christ in 1959, it would have been wonderful if you just had this kind of suction, you know, like at the bank, suction tube to suck me up to heaven. Wouldn't that be great? Beam me up, Lord. No, he leaves us here for a purpose. He has a mission for us, such as we are, and he's going to evaluate what we've done for him. Listen to me. Jesus looks into your heart. He knows everything about you, any bitterness, any unforgiveness, any rebellion. And says, you need to be living for me. We need to be fine together. Nothing in between us. Therefore, I want you to remember three things. Application uh, for your relationship with the real Jesus. Number one, he knows how you followed him. He knows how you're following him. And he said, follow me and I'll make you fishermen. No, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. Bert Downs, Dr. Downs said, God, Jesus transforms us when we follow him so that we become concerned about the lost and we become fishers for men. Is that true in your life? Are you being transformed by Jesus Christ that what he wants you to do is, is draw people to Jesus as Savior? Are you allowing Jesus to transform you to do that? Remember that. If you want a relationship with Jesus, he says, Stay, stick with me. Let's walk in step together. Now, I've had the privilege of hearing Jerry Larson. Maybe some of you know him. He used to be the pastor, I think, First Baptist Milwaukee. Puts on evangelism seminar. And he says, here's a prayer on how to fish. Open doors, open their hearts, and open my mouth. <laughs> 
would you like to ask that to the Lord today? Open a door so I can see who needs to hear this gospel. It's written in my message notes. Show me open doors to walk through as I go through the Fred Meyer store and I talk to somebody, I see their name, I talk to them and try to, you know, I'm trying to fish. When I joined the Chamber of Commerce in Oregon City, it was for the purpose of finding fish. See how much time we got here. Let me just go off script here and give you a story. When I was in college, I had a great desire to share the Lord. And, uh, I, you know, I surrendered to full-time ministry when I was a senior in high school. So I was a Southern Baptist, and many of you know what Southern Baptists are in Texas. I went to the University of New Mexico, and they had on campus a building called the Baptist Student Union. And that's where Baptists could gather when they were on campus. And so I would drive my 1957 XK41 Jaguar <laughs> downtown, convertible, and park at the Baptist Student Union, take my sack lunch and put it in the refrigerator, and run off to my classes on philosophy, and, and then after class, run back to the State Union building, play ping pong, and hang out with my friends, and do that year after year for a couple of years. And finally, one year, I said, we need to reach this campus. So what do we do? I know. Let's get some really great evangelists to come to our Baptist Student Union, and let's invite everybody on campus to come. So we did that. We got a, a gentleman from Houston, Texas, flew him up here, and he was really a great guy, a great headliner, if you want to say that, to attract people. We, we got to, we, I can remember making silkscreen uh, posters all over, the, all over the place, every residence hall, and people. And so we prayed, and we prayed. We had the music all ready to go. And so the first night, Monday night, there's Bill ready to preach, and we, and we come into the room, and you know who's there? Only us. There, were no, there was nobody from out there from across the street. What did we do wrong? Second night, how many people came? Only us. So finally, I, we talked to Bill and said, so what's going on? He says, you know what? Have you gone to the campus and met these people? Ooh. <laughs> no. So he said, come with me. So we went into one of the largest dormitories at UNM, Coronado Hall, and went into the lobby and sat around and, and talked with people about the Lord. Revolutionary. Amazing. And so with that, I decided to not be a part of the Baptist Student Union. I left home, became, joined, uh, became a resident at one of the resident halls, and started a Bible study so I could be where the fish are. If I'm going fishing, I'm not going to fish in, in a pond with no fish. I want us to go into the ponds where the fish are. And they're not in this, this is a stained glass aquarium sometimes, thinking bring people in and the big fishermen will catch them. No, this is what we need to be doing. Open doors, Lord, so I can see. And then open their hearts if there's a hunger about spiritual things. Who put that there? God did. There's a heart there, like Lydia's heart was opened. And then, Lord, ask me, help me to open my mouth and share what God has done in my life. Share the gospel with them. That's a fisher person. And by the way, I can't tell you, I led a lot of people to the Lord at UNM, but I was trying and I learned a lesson. It's more about going out, keep the arrows pointed outward, and, and for you in the pew to be the ones who are the evangelist, right? Amen. Okay, I just want to know. But because you know how to follow him, he will hold you accountable for your, relation, for your stewardship. 
Luke 9, 16, verse 9 says this in one of Jesus' parables. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Yes, Jesus will welcome you. But will there be friends that you influence to come to faith in Christ standing at the gate saying, Oh, it's Shirley. Thank you for sharing the gospel with me. Oh, Judy. Remember when you worked at Bible Study Fellowship and you shared the gospel? That's when I came to faith in Christ, welcomed into heaven. Are you going to have anybody, any friends in heaven who are going to welcome you there? Use what you've got now to do that is the point of that parable. Use worldly wealth, your resources, everything. You see, I think when Jesus comes back, he's not going to care so much about how much money is still in the church savings account. He's going to care about are you personally fishing for men. That's what he wants to find out. And he's going to hold you accountable for how you use your time to do that, how you use your treasures to do that, and how you use your talents and your spiritual gifts to do that. Is that right? Is that what, the, is that what Jesus says? That's what it says. The third thing about your relationship with Jesus that I think is important to remember is that he will reward you in heaven for what you did out of love for him. There's a reward. You cross the finish line. You get, you get <laughs> my word. And in the race itself, you can run like, you know, Eric Lavelle, I built that God in my life when I run like this. He'll reward you. And here's, here's the point. No one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If a man builds on this foundation using gold and silver and costly stones, may that be us, or using wood, or hay or stubble to build on the foundation. Because if the big bad wolf comes, I'll huff and puff and I'll blow that house down. His work will be shown for what it is because on that day he will bring to light, all to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And he's going to test the quality of my work. Why am I doing this today? Was it out of love? And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. You know it well. If I speak in the tongues of angels, of men and angels, but have not love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. You love God. I'm looking at your logo. Love God and love people and make disciples, right? Loving people is sharing the gospel with them. It's laying down your life for them. And if you're not loving God and you're just going through the religious motions of whatever that might be, you know, I'm looking down at God's judgment seat and I see that I'm in line and there's my name on there and there's this big pile. Oh, my goodness, that's that's great rewards, and then he turns on the flamethrower, and there's maybe one gold nugget left. I don't know. I hope not. I'm doing this in love. And so here's the thing about communion when I bring this up. What are you doing for Jesus now that will reward you for in heaven? It's got to be out of love, and it must be prompted by love and done. So when we come to the communion table, it's a time for each one of us to take inventory. Now at this table, are you just going through religious tradition that this is what we do on the first Sunday of the month? Or are you seeing Jesus here with us this morning? 
Fix your eyes on Jesus. Do we recognize Him? Or are you afflicted with spiritual dementia? Sally, it's me, Jesus. I'm talking to you. You're at the table. And Sally's eyes are blank. George, this is Jesus. You're here at the gathered worship and communion. And I want to do business with you today. Do you recognize that I'm here? Would you ask our Lord to grace us with right memories about Him and what is important to Him? And then repent and adjust your life so that you would go on that right path where the blessings are. He loves you so much that He came to die in your place for you. What? There's no greater love than that, Jesus said. And so this morning as we come to this table of remembrance, this communion, it's about having a right relationship with your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says we must place our faith in Jesus in order to participate in this Passover, this communion with the blood of the Lamb. Have you placed your faith in Jesus alone to be your Savior? And I just want to share a scripture with you from John 1.12. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, and gave them the right to become the children of God. And everyone in this room, I don't know where you are with the Lord. Have you placed your faith in Him? And online, this could be the day of your salvation as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and place your faith in Him. Remember who He is accurately. And just cry out, Lord, dear God, I'm scared. I, I want to get to know You. I don't understand it all, but I thank You that You love me. I thank You that You were with me even when I didn't recognize it. I thank You that You are for me. You didn't send Jesus to condemn me, but to save me. I admit that I never realized I needed a Savior. But today I want to receive the gift of your Son. I ask you to save me from my past, my regrets, my mistakes, my sins, my habits, my hurts, and my hang-ups. I need you to take away the stress and fill me with your love. Oh, God, I need to be at peace with you, and I need you to help put peace, have peace in your heart. I ask you to save me for your purposes. I want to know why you put me on this planet. And I want to fulfill what you made me to do. I want to learn to love you and trust you and have a relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. And with your heads bowed, everyone, please. If there's someone in this room this morning who's not sure of their eternal salvation, who's not placed their faith in the blood of the Lamb, just raise your hand this morning. I want to talk with you. And if you're online, Stick your hand out towards whatever your device you're using and say, help me, Jesus. Save me from my sins. Please. And you know what? You are accepted in your beloved. You are now included in his family as a baby Christ. And he wants you to be with him and with others to gather worship. Believe in Jesus' name. Remember him accurately this morning. is the time for you to talk with God and tell Him that you believe in Jesus alone.
Heavenly Father, Almighty God, that your Spirit move in people's hearts this morning to do business with you. Whatever sin that's blocking your Spirit's flow, identify it in my life and remove it. Show me the way to change. Spirit in me, I have the Spirit to change as well. And we thank you for this table this morning that you have for.